Okay, shalom, shalom shalom. Okay, at the outset, I just of course want to say that we're going to dedicate our learning to the uh, safe return of our Hayalim and of our Shuyim uh, and for Shlema, for all the injured. And Hazrat uh, Hashem, you should see Geula Shlema in Heira. Okay, so Parakitet um, is it's an interesting parak because it's kind of the escalation of the sad story of the deterioration of the relationship between Shaul and David that, that started when David uh, first came and, and he played for Shaul and he loved him so much and we had this whole, you know, but yeah, and, and he just... Uh, related so much to to um, to David. And then we saw how David kills Goliath in chapter 17. And all of a sudden, a seed of doubt is planted in Shaul's mind. Shaul is no longer comfortable with David. He feels, you know, he's got a hanging over his head. But Shaul's, uh, Shmuel, the Navi, said that your place will be taken by Reachat Tovimcha. And Shaul is not willing, which is one of the great um, interesting facets of human personality that would interest you, Debbie, the psychological end of it, that he cannot, like he didn't want to be the king. He kept trying to get out of it. He kept, you know, backing off and saying, who me? And, but once he became the king, he can't let go of it. And Shmuel has told him, you're no longer the king. And he's not able to internalize that. And he looks around all the time for this threat. Now, in a certain sense, if we really want to look at him in the whole picture, he is being disturbed by this Ruach Ra. He is having some sort of um, depression, paranoia, melancholy, whatever you want to say, there's something that takes a hold of him. So it's not entirely, you know, quote unquote, his fault. But there is something very sad about the way this whole story plays out. In any event, in chapter 18, last time, we saw how Shaul became increasingly suspicious. You know, the, the women singing, that song really um, started a very great downward turn for him. And he began to really go in his mind against David. In this chapter, we find that Shaul's hostility and his animosity, you know, this is what they call in Israel, Ze Madrega, it goes up higher. And he's willing to come, so to speak, out of the closet and openly declare that he wants to kill David. Now, it's not completely open, but to his inner circle, he says this. And what's interesting about this parak is that David Amalf is saved. He's saved by Yonatan. He's saved by Michal. He's saved by Kodesh And oddly enough, at the end of the parak, David pulls Shmuel Hanabi out of retirement, and Shmuel Hanabi also saves David. So we have this sort of 
thing that that's uh you know i i found that it was kind of to me it was like in our difficult matzav that we're in right now that it's sort of this parak is a study in amuna akadosh baruch Hu, akadosh baruch Hu wants david to be saved and akadosh baruch Hu is going to save him and it's going to be on this this way and it's going to be that way but this is going to be so I feel like that would be like a, the first the first lesson that we have to see here, that you know you have to have a muna who will save the people he wants to save, and in this matzav feel that he wants to save all of us. Bezrat Hashem, and may he watch over all of us individually and collectively, and save us as he saves David. So I'm going to share screen now. We'll look at the text. Okay. All righty then. Okay, so wait, 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 where is it? Yeah. <coughs> oh, I usually look at this edition first. And here we see they only have two pa two paragraphs. But to me, to me, it would be going from Aleph to Zion, Yonatan saves David. From Chet to Yud Hashem saves David. From Yud Aleph to Yud Zayin, Michal saves David. And from Yud Chet to the end, Shmuel and Navi saves David. It's like four different ways that David is saved. It's very interesting. Okay, <clears throat> so let's go back to the last Pasuk in Paragid Chet. I'm sorry. <clears throat> dry. Uh, here. The last pasuk. By Yetsu Sarei Plishtim, by Yehimi Deit Seitam, Sachal David Mikol Abdei Shaul, by Yikar Shmuel Maod. There's a direct connection between the end of chapter 18 and, chapter, and the beginning of chapter 19. Because David, you know, he's just killed... 200 to Plishtim in order to marry Michal. And they're taking their foreskins, which is, like I said, more gruesome. Reminds me of the Indians scalping people. Okay, but the Plishtim are not so happy about it, so they attack again and again. And every time they attack, David fights them very successfully. And he is more successful than all of Shaul's other servants. And his name becomes Yakar. He becomes the national hero. And the next thing we see at the beginning of our parak, parak Yutet, Pasak Aleph, by Daber Shaul Yonatan Benobel, Kalavadov Lahamit David. Okay, the first thing we see after the tremendous continuing success of David is that Shaul wants to kill him. And he openly says to his servants, Let's, I want to kill David. Now, it's a very sad development. You see how, you know, it's kind of Avera Goeret Avera. One sin leads to another. You allow the jealousy to conquer you. The jealousy makes you uh, more and more angry. The anger breeds hostility. The hostility breeds violence and paranoia. And um, all kinds of bad things follow. But here, and again, I think I mentioned at the beginning of last session in Yudchet that Yehonatan, right, after this, um, at the beginning of Parakid Chet, we see that he, he responds to the 
killing of Goliath. Sorry for the uh, little bit dizzy making. This is the beginning of Perik Yichet. The Dabir shall be nefesh Yehonatan, mikshara be nefesh David, by Yehu Yehonatan Kenafsho. All of a sudden, the beginning of chapter 18, we changed from Yonatan to Yehonatan. And we saw him, so people, some people might say that it's arbitrary. Sometimes it's Yonatan, sometimes it's Yehonatan. But if you look carefully, it's not, it doesn't look arbitrary. When in chapter 14, he acts as a great hero, he gets the hay. God can save us in any way he likes. When he says that, he's Yehonatan. After that, he kind of comes to Yonatan. And now, when he expresses this great love for David in chapter 18, and we see that he's able to be mitgaber, to overcome the jealousy that Caesar Shaul. Shaul and Yonatan are basically in the same boat, right? Shaul's the current king. Yonatan's the future king. David is a threat to both of them. So whereas Shaul reacts with paranoia, jealousy, and hatred, Yehonatan gets that additional spiritual edge, that hey from Akash Baruch Hu, and he becomes a greater spiritual person and able to see David's Milas and put himself um, out of this picture or secondary in this picture. Now, if you notice in Pasuk Aleph, by Daber Shaul El Yonatan, he speaks to Yonatan as if appealing to Yonatan's baser instincts. The El Kalava Double Hamith David to all of his servants in order to put David to death. The Yehonatan, but we're we're not dealing with Yonatan anymore. He's now Yehonatan. And he is Chafetz Bidabid Ma'od. Shaul badly miscalculated here. In his mind, all of his people, his servants, you know, his chief servant, who we find out later was Doeg. All of his servants should be feeling the same hostility and the same jealousy that he feels. And it seems simple to him that, of course, Yonatan will feel the same way. But the Pasuk tells us right away, Yonatan is not in that game. Yonatan is not in the same parsha as Shaul. Now, what does he mean, lahamit, at David? Lahamit, to cause him to die. It's the hefil of uh, death. So often we would say laharog. We have lots of synonyms in Hebrew for killing. Why Lahamit? And the, the Barbanel has an interesting theory here. He says that Shaul is telling his servants that he wants to kill David, but he, he's got a problem because David is a, is a national hero. So he can't be too open about it because, I mean, why are you killing David? David is our hero. So he he wants it to look. Rashi says it similarly, but um, one second. Uh, not in here. No, this is Mitsudas. Sorry, sorry, it's Mitsudas, not Rashi. But And Mitsudas is following the Abarbanel's um, idea. The Abarbanel spells it out. In other words, what he's telling them is, let's have some sort of incident with David, we'll have maybe some servants fighting with each other and David will intervene and he'll get killed by accident. I want it to look like an accident. And he tells it to them, but Yonatan, Yehonatan, Chafetz b'David ma'od. And the Mitzvah says, 
God Luto. He wants him to be successful. He wants him things to be good for him. So he runs to David, classic bit. Yehonatan goes to David and he says, my father of Shaul wants to kill you. And now, watch yourself, be careful in the morning and hide yourself, put yourself in a hiding place, a seter, and and I will go out and I will stand next to my father in the field where you are hiding. And I will talk about you to my father and I'll see what's happening and I'll tell you. So there's a lot going on here. So let's take it, you know, one by one by one. Now, Yonatan in, in the next chapter, in chapter 20, he tells David, my father wouldn't do anything without telling me. So he feels pretty confident that he knows what's on Shaul's mind. And he feels like he can work this down. So he says, look, you have to be careful, okay? Because, you know, Yonatan doesn't know what's in the mind of all those servants. In other words, anybody that Shaul spoke to could do something to David in the, in the upcoming hours and in the morning. It seems like there seems to be some sort of protocol. We see it later in the Peric also, that you don't attack someone in the middle of the night in their home, right? It's, it's going to happen in the morning. So perhaps Shol doesn't want to you know, disturb Michal, that's his daughter. But we see it also with Shimshon, you know, that when he's in Aza, curse of plate, when he's in Aza, the, the, um, the Aza Tim who want to capture him they wait till the middle of the night. They don't go right after him. And David's uh, uh, Shimshon is gone. It's gone when, you know, they said, we'll wait for him in the morning. We'll catch him. And but he leaves in the middle of the night. So there's something about the morning. Yonatan says, you must be careful and hide. And the point is, he's going to hide out in the field. And Yonatan will go out there. Apparently, this was a field where Shaul would go out. This is what, you know, the, the modern suggests. And and he's going to talk to his father there. You're going to be in hiding. Yonatan says, and I'll talk to my father, and I'll see what's doing, and I'll tell you. So the freshmen were all disturbed by this. If David is hiding there, why does Yonatan have to tell him? And if he's, you know, if he's not there, like, why, why is he hiding there? And why does Yonatan have to tell him? So there's a couple of things that are going on here. Why should David hide nearby? So the Radak says, if you don't, I'm going to talk about, like, he wants David to hear. Yonatan is, he can't really understand his father's um, state of mind in a certain way. And he feels like, if, I'll just explain it to him, that it isn't right. And then he'll see how good you are. And it'll be better. And he really feels that he can talk his father out of it. And so he says, when you start hearing all these good things, right, you'll hear it. And if you don't hear it, I'll tell you. That's what Radak says. But Rabbi Shaya Mitrani says he wants him to be available for Yehonatan to tell him right away in case it's a negative report. Run. So this is the plan. Okay. And then we have the uh, the, the words here. Ani adaber b'cha elavi. 
So the Befarshim make a lot of uh, distinction here in these words. Usually, when you're talking about somebody and you're saying good things, I need to bear a love, right? But the Daber Beh has negative connotations. Take a look at this. Okay. Uh, no, wrong one. Wrong one. Oh, my. I didn't open these sources for you. Okay, you'll just trust me on this one. Okay, he says it here. I'll show you maybe the Malvin. Da, shakol dibur shaba harav kishur habet more al shemidaber ra achavero daber be to talk in, and for example, but to daber Miriam be Moshe. Miriam was not saying nice things about Moshe. Ki dibarnu b'ashem the children of Israel take, tell Moshe, forgive us, we spoke be in Hashem and in you, we criticize it. So uh, I'm going to speak bad things about you. So how does that work? And here is where um, you have to understand that it's a tremendous lesson for us to learn. And, you know, I always say there's nothing like a good Jewish lawyer. <laughs> Jonathan has to give over to his father all of the, the reasons why it's wrong to be against David. But in order to do that, and this is a tremendous lesson for us, a real life lesson, when you need to argue with someone, when you need to persuade someone, first you start by agreeing with them. This disarms them, I mean figuratively, this makes them feel closer to you and this opens their mind to hear when you have to say things that are against them. I've seen a, a number of places where uh, very great people, thinking of a, a whole discussion um, that I've seen in talking, how do you talk to a person who has a, a diametrically opposed ideology from you? First, you agree with them. So you know you're right, it's a problem. And then you say, but, but once you've agreed with them, then perhaps they're ready to listen. So show Yonatan, and the Malvin goes through a whole scenario. Let's go on and I'll, I'll show you what he says. And Yonatan speaks about David good things to Shaul, his father. And he says to him, the king, who gives him this honor, don't sin, the king, he speaks in the third person, with your servant, with David, because he hasn't sinned to you. And his deeds are actually very good for you. So according to the Malbim, the first thing he says is a negative one. He says, you know, David is very rash and he takes risks, but you know, he, he didn't ever rebel against you. He didn't sin against you. And all the things that he does, these feats of bravery, they're good for you. He, he put his, his soul in his hand. This is an expression for risking the life. Because when you put something in the hand, right, you have, when, when you close it, Right, it stays there. The minute you open the hand, it could fall out. So he risks his life 
and he struck the Plishti. This seems to be a reference to Goyat. And because of that, Hashem did a great shua to all of Israel. Ra'ita, it says, you saw it, are you happy at that point? And why would you sin with innocent blood to put David to death for no reason? So there's a number of things that Yonatan does here. Like I said, he's a good Jewish lawyer. First of all, if he starts with the negative, which is the Malvin's theory, we don't see it in the Pesach, but he says, but he gives him this honor. He gives Shal the honor. Hamelech, the king, he should not sin with his uh, servant, right? Because he didn't do anything bad. Everything he did was good for you. Don't forget that for 40 days, no one was taking on the giant. Our kingdom was slipping away from us. And he comes forward, and because of him, and notice in Pasuke, he gives the credit to God. He doesn't know, he knows that Shaul doesn't love giving credit to David. Hashem did the great salvation. Now, if you cast your mind back to chapter 14, when Yonatan is the source of the great salvation, and the people redeem Yonatan, and they say, he cannot be killed because he is the one who brought about the salvation. And go back again to chapter 11. Chapter 11, when Shaul makes a great victory against Nachash, the king of Ammon, and people say, where are those guys who were against the king? Let's kill them. And Shaul says, because there's a great victory, it's not suitable to kill anyone on this day. So under the surface, Yonatan is giving Shaul reasons to say, yes, this is a great victory. Hashem did a great victory. And you were happy, he says. How could you sin now? Why, why would you do that? And he seems to make a dent, Pasuk Vav. Vayishma Sha'ul b'kol Yehonatan. Vayishava Sha'ul chay Hashem emimat. Sha'ul responds to this tremendously um, skillful presentation of Yonatan. And he says, you're right. You're right. He's good. He's good. Don't forget, David's been his, you know, he's the one who keeps him from the Ruach Ra. He plays the music. He makes him feel better. Like, David, you know, there are sides to Shaul that really appreciate David. Now, as the story plays out, it's really actually tragic. There are a number of places where you see that Shaul is completely ambivalent. He's, he's so torn. And other places later, when he's like chasing David down and he meets up with David, he said, is that you, my son, David? He's, he's, his affection is there and his personality is so divided that when Yonatan gives him this big pitch, he does sort of sway there. He says, yeah, okay, I won't kill him. Now, there's really two ways to take this situation. And he swears, no, I'm not going to kill him. So first of all, we can't really get too excited about Shaul's swearing because we've seen many oaths that he took that weren't fulfilled. Just say it, right? He, you know, he swore that no one will eat and that they will put to death even if it's Yonatan, and then, yeah, Yonatan will die. All of his oaths don't seem to amount to much, which is a very sad comment to make. But then you have to ask yourself, when he says this to Yonatan, does he mean it or not? 
does he mean it or not? And there's two ways to learn that up. Okay, yes, he means it. Yonatan gave him this eloquent presentation. He convinces him, and he's, you're right. Of course, you know, David is great, and he won't kill him. And he means it in the moment, but when he gets hit with his ruach ra, when he gets hit with more jealousy, that whole thing will crumble. The other possibility, which the uh, Barbanel suggests, is that he actually um, is lying to Yonatan because he realizes that Yonatan is not on his side. And if he tells Yonatan, no, no, I want to kill him, Yonatan will run and tell David. But if he tells David, no, my father it doesn't want to kill you, then David will be not be on guard. So there is a very, uh, you know, a different way of understanding this. So Pasuk Zion, this to me is a very, it's a very poignant Pasuk. To me, it's like sad because Yonatan calls David and says, it's all okay. My father doesn't hit you anymore. And he swears that he's not going to hurt you. And he brings him back to Shaul and there's this big, you know, we're back to Etimol Shalshom. Etimol is yesterday, Shalshom is the day before. Together, they're a phrase meaning previously, all is forgiven and we are back to where we were. And that does not last long. Again, there's a war against the Philistines. David goes out. He strikes a great blow against them. They flee before him. And you can imagine the women coming out going, yay, David, right? And the people going, our hero. And this is not going to play well for Shaul. Now, we had this scenario in, in Parakirchet. In Parakirchet, we saw that, we should go back and look at it. Okay, we saw that Shaul, uh, it seems like a whim. We have to compare it. He he's very upset with him, but and he gets the bad spirit. Now the bad spirit, it's just a hard thing. Is that like a a, a, a psychotic episode? Is that just is that just God? It, what does that mean? And it keeps being told that it's from God, which the Barbadell explains is because God removed the good spirit, so the bad spirit came in. But it does seem sort of malevolent. Like he gets into these fits of paranoia and jealousy and hatred. And here, this is in the last parak, by Now, Hitnabe, we're going to see later in the parak, it's the Hitpael of prophesizing. And it means attempting to prophesize and going into deep thoughts. And someone from the outside looks at that. And here Rashi says, Ishtate, it looks like they're raving. David is playing, the expression to play in his hand, like if you figure that he's got a harp, his hands are busy. Whatever kind of musical instrument you have, most of them, you need to use your hands. 
spear is there. So David is first playing, and then Shaul takes the chanit, he throws the chanit, and he says, I'm going to hit David in the wall. I'm going to pin him to the wall. And David turns away twice. Remember, we did this last time. And that seems to be uh, some sort of incredible miracle. It almost seems like David could be completely unconscious of it. We don't know if David realized that Shaul was trying to kill him. Because he's, he's fiddling with his spear. David is involved with his music. God makes a miracle so that the, the spear of, of a person that David later eulogizes and says, he never missed. This is a man who never misses. And David sort of turns away twice, which is terrifying for Shaul because he sees that God is with him. But you see that that could have been either Shaul said, I just dropped it, it was a mistake, or David was completely oblivious. But here, it's not like that. He has this, right? We're told in this section, Pasuk Ted, that he's sitting there and he has a spear in his hand and then David plays. So David is now aware that Shaul is sitting there with the spear. It's not like before David was playing and then he took the spear. Now he's got the spear and David starts playing. Now Shaul attempts to strike with his spear, David and the wall, now, this is a much more intentional vayiftar. Now, peter is a separation, like a peter rechem, the first of the womb, right? That is, a, you know, the haftor is the ending, ein maftir, the finish. So David slips away, he leaves, you know, you know, uh, he's not sitting around waiting to get the spear in the head. David Nas, David fled by He flees and he escapes at that night. Here it seems very clear to David that this is intentional. There's no, you know, even if he knew what happened last time, which is not entirely clear, he, he didn't think that he meant it. But now it's completely intentional. Shaul was trying to kill him. And now it becomes very clear to David. And don't forget, Yonatan warned him, my father wants to kill you. And it's kind of sad because he says to him, right? Shaul says, Shaul Aviv, right? And Shaul, I mean, Yonatan, Shaul Aviv. So you have to understand that the characters in the story are so completely torn in their loyalties. It must be so hard. Because Yonatan is now, he's trying to maintain a relationship with his father, but he thinks his father is completely out of line. And his friendship for David is extremely strong. And he's he's so torn, right? And then he says, right? He's like, brings him back, brings him to show, well, it's all good. And then he tries to kill him again. So now David cannot fool himself anymore. If he hangs around, Shaul will kill him. And this is the beginning of David's wanderings, right? And prosecute Aleph. Okay, and I really meant to open this paratillum for you. This is where it is. I'll just tell you exactly. Pretty sure it's 
Nuntet, just to give you the, the correct, the correct parak. If you follow the David's wanderings, a lot of them are in the Tillin, and they're by name, right? Right. Pasuk Parak Nuntet fifty nine. Lam Natsayef Al Tashleit LeDavid Mechtam. It's very, very sad, right? Um, he asked God to save him from his enemies. Shaul has become his enemy. And Okay. So the way I see this parak is that the first person who saves David is Yonatan, going against his father. After that, he's saved by a miracle by God, because he escapes Shoal's spear, which is it's a complete miracle. Shoal never misses. And now Michal is going to be the one to save him. Michal Ishto, notice Michal is Shoal's daughter. But the text characterized her as David's wife because she's also, like Yonatan, switched her loyalty to David. And we don't know how she knows, but somehow she has inside information. She says if um, David has put, that Shaul has put in place guards to keep David from running away, again, we see this whole weird thing, only in the morning. They're going to guard the house and they're not going to let him go, run away. And in the morning, they'll kill him. They're not going to kill him at night. And she says, if you don't get out of here, tomorrow you're going to be dead. If you don't escape your, with your soul tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. And Michal lets David down through the window, right? And, uh, he goes, he flees, and he escapes. Now, the three action verbs give you a sense of the speed with which is going on. And this reminds us of another woman who saved two men by sending them out the window. Rachav, remember. But Michal doesn't just, she's not just satisfied with having an escape. She has more to her plan. Batikach pasak yigimel, batikach Michal et hatrafim, and Michal took the truffin, we'll get back to that, and she puts them in the bed, and kvir ha'izim, and a goat skin, she put by the head, and she covered him with a, uh, some clothing. So what does she do? In order to stall the messengers, in order to make sure that they don't, um, catch David, right? She wants to give David time to run away. If you remember Rachav in the same situation, she sends the 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 king's men on a wild goose chase. Go over there, and she has them hidden, and then she takes them out later. Here she says, if I don't stall them, David won't have time to run away. So she takes the truffin, which seems to be something in the likeness of a human form, in the size of a human form, she puts it in the bed. Now, Trafim have no hair, 
So she takes something hairy. And by the way, a goat skin can either be, you know, white or black or brown. There's no, there's no redheaded goats. So want to make sure everyone reminds, remind yourself, David is not a redhead. It says that that's referring to his complexion. And I showed you, I think, when we did that parak in, in Tetzayin, how the dod in Shirashirim, the dod is tzach adom. He's pure and red, right? But his taltalim his curls are black like a raven. So she's got a likeness of a human being in the bed, complete to probably black hair, because why on earth would David have white hair at his age, right? And if you cover him, right, it seems to be that there's someone lying in the bed, right? And the messengers come by Yishlak Shaul Malachim, Pasuk Yedalit, Lakachat David, Batomecholehu. And the messengers of Shaul come and they want to take David, and she says he's sick. And Shoal sent the messengers again. They see David saying, I don't really care if he's sick. Bring him to me in his bed. I want to kill him. Okay. So they're going back and forth from Shoal's house to David's house. And they Shoal sends them back. Don't take no for an answer. And they come in, they insist on seeing um, David, and they find that they have been uh, tricked, and there's nothing in there but this trophim and the goat skin at his head. And Shaul is upset with Michal, why have you fooled me? But to Shalchi at Oivi, Vayimalait. And you sent my enemy, and he escaped. He told me, "Send me away. I don't have. I don't want to kill you." Okay. So Michal has lied to her father twice, right? First she tells him he's sick, and then she tells him David threatened her, and that's why she had to help him escape. And Rashi makes it a little clear. Rashi says. Uh, you gave me to a bandit. He pulled his sword on me until I sent him. So there's a couple of things. I, I wanted to give you the whole sense of the story, and then we can examine it a little bit. There are a number of questions we have on this story. So the first question is, what's this about them, you know, in the morning? Putting the guards around to will kill them in the morning. So that seems to be... They they want him, they want to catch him in the morning. They don't want him to run away. So they put guards there. They don't want to take him in the middle of the night. It seems like that's a, not a thing that is done, like I showed you from Shimshon. You wait till the morning, you catch the person. And the Malbim goes into a whole situation here because Shaul, at some point, is going to have to justify killing David. So what he's going to say, according to the Malvin, is he uh, is a Moraid, he's a rebel. I told him to come, he didn't come, and of course David's running away because he doesn't want to get killed, but Shaul can use that as a pretext that he's a rebel. And I told him to come back, and he didn't come back, and so the people could say, well, what did he do? So well, he, he did, well, if he didn't run away, it's a sign that he really 
um, is not guilty because a guilty person would run away. And Joel will say, the only reason he didn't run away is because I didn't let him. So he's kind of trying to make a case against David at the same time that he's trying to entrap him. So we have this issue. The next issue we have is the trophy, and that's a very sticky question. What's going on with the trophy? The last time we saw someone lie about Trophim was back in Gracious. And that does the reference here that I opened for you. By, uh, oh, oh. Loving went to shield the sheep. Rachel steals the Trophim that belonged to her father. Now, the question of those Trophim in the time of Lava. Okay, generally speaking, the commentaries say, number one, either she stole the trophim to save her father from Avodah or number two, she stole the trophim because Laban used them for divination, and if he had the trophim, he would figure out where they've gone, which would be a problem. So the, the Ibn Ezra, I'm not even sure if this is Ibn Ezra. I think it's Ibn Ezra. Oh yeah, it is Ibn Ezra. I lost it again. Um, yeah, the Ibn Ezra has a whole long discussion about Trophim. And first of all, he doesn't like the whole idea that she's saving her father from Rodazara. Well, if you wanted to save her father from Rodazara, she should, you know, distance herself from this, you know, from her father and then bury them, get rid of them. Why is she taking them with her? So that seems to be, bother him. But he goes into a long discussion, and we don't really have a lot of time for a long discussion. I'll give you the short version. According to the Mepharshim, okay, if you look back at, at our story here, Trophim, um, they're made in the shape of a man. Rashi doesn't even discuss the whole problem here. Why? says. Why? The Trophim, if you go back to when Shmuel is reprimanding Sha'ol back in chapter 15 after he fails to destroy Amalek, which we have to destroy Amalek. Let's just remember that. We have to destroy Amalek. He doesn't finish the job and we all suffer for it. Anyway, so he says, Ki kesem meri the oven trophim haftsar. Shmuel says, Shaul, stop arguing with me because when you rebel, it's like you're uh, doing magic. And when you insist, when you persist in your recalcitrance, it's like oven, it's like um, sin and trophim. And trophim is used in a very negative sense. So if we have the sense of trophim, our avodazara, how come David has trophim in his house? We just, what? What? So the Abarbanel goes into a long discussion, and I'll just give you what the Abarbanel says, because the, I, I went through a lot of um, explanations, interpretations, and ideas of what the trophim are. And the Abarbanel sort of sums it up. He says there are many ways that people use these trophim. They were made out of some sort of metal, in the shape of a, of a human being. Now you have to figure that they're in the size of a human being. Although 
in Rachel's case, they seem to be small enough for her to hide them and sit on them. So what's up with that? But these trophim, in the case of, of um, Michal, these trophim seem to be life-size enough to fool the king's messengers. So the Rabbanel says, okay, some were used to for um, uh, Avodah Zarah, that is true. Some were used to, um, and the, the Ibn Ezra says, I don't really understand how this works, but it calls down some sort of supernatural power, and there is some sort of way it was used for divination and telling the future. But the Abarmanel says, and it's really actually quite amusing, I think, the Abarmanel says that women would make a, a statue of the likeness of their husbands because they loved them so much. So Michal, who loved David so much, made a statue in his image, and she used that. And the Bible says, this is not a sin. So um, that's, the that's I thought, the Barbanel was closest to something that we could, you know, we could swallow, because it's such a strange story. Okay, then the next question is, why does she lie to her father when he says, um, why didn't? Why did you trick me? Because can you imagine the betrayal Shoal feels? Yonatan is not on his side, and now Michal lies to him and lets his enemy calls him his enemy already. Lets his her, his enemy get away. So what are you doing? And she, like, and I, I see that as her like Yonatan, not wanting to make a final split with her father. She wants to keep the relationship if she can. So she lies and she says, you know what? He threatened me and that's why I did it. So that would keep Shaul from being angry with her. It's it's kind of a, a very sad situation anyway you slice it. <clears throat> the Ralbag has a comment here, which I thought I'd share with you. The Ralbag says, it's appropriate to do whatever you can to make sure your mission is successful. And he, he, he says, Michal, it wasn't enough for her to just help him escape. It was important for her that she gave him extra time with this whole subterfuge. Meantime, by David Barach, by Yimalet, by Yavo El Shmuel Haramata, by Yagedlo et Kosher Solo Shaul, by Yelahu Shmuel, by Yeshvu. Okay. Now we have this out of nowhere Shmuel. Shmuel, we haven't seen him since chapter 16. He has been missing in action for chapters 17, 18, and now 19. And David pulls him out of out of retirement. David says, Where can I go now? Who can help me here? Shaul wants to kill me. And he, you know, all my friends and all my people have to go along with Shaul. How do I save myself? So he goes to the person who is the author of his situation, so to speak, the one who anointed him. But yeah, get those cultures. He tells him what happened. Shaul tried to kill me. At last count, this is something like four times. And what am I supposed to do with this? He sent me through the plush game. He sent his servants against me. He sent the, someone to, to the house. He tried to kill me with a spear. And Shmuel doesn't answer. We don't hear from Shmuel here, but he takes him to Nayot. Now, what's Nayot? 
So the Matuda says it's a place in Rama, right? And it's a place for the sons of Nubia. Rashi says in the next passage, Beit Ulpana. Now, Ulpana, those of you who know what Ulpana is, Ulpana is a, it's like a Beit Midrash. And so we see that what has Shmuel been doing since he left the scene, he has been training new Nubia. And so, and so we see this whole thing going on. And one of the things, if you recall, from the beginning of Sefer Shmuel, that when Shmuel became a prophet, prophecy exploded, right? There was, a prophecy was contained. But once at the end of Paragimel, once Shmuel started prophesying, there became more and more prophecy. So Shmuel is teaching prophets. And the expression lehitnabe, which we saw used by Shaul, is attempting to achieve that level on whatever, in whatever way they could. Okay, so a strange story happens here. Okay. Now I just want to mention this is a very important medrash here, that they are talking about. Um, Nayot, the Nayot is like a um, a um, naveh, like a a a, um, a pleasant place, and so the Medrash says he was talking about where the base Hamikdash was going to be built. That Shmuel and David were having this major discussion about building the base Hamikdash, which actually is one of the things that um, David works very hard on. That's the Medrash here. In the meantime, it seems to be somewhere near Rama, and that's where he goes. Okay? Asakhav. Vayishlach Shaul Malachim lakachat et David. Shaul finds out that David is by Shmuel. And it's interesting to, to speculate on this, like, where are Shmuel's loyalty? Shmuel was very, very fond of Shaul. But now, when he sees the way things are playing out, Shoal is not taking his direction. Shoal did not listen to him on very key issues. And now he's trying to kill David, who's the next anointed king. So Shmuel is going to be, as hard as it is for Shmuel personally, he is going to be trying to protect David, who's supposed to be the next king. And watch what happens. Shoal sends messengers to take David. And this is singular, which is interesting, but Mitsuda says, Every one of the messengers sees the band of Nevi'im. There's like this whole, you know, college class of, you know, Nevi'im in training, apprentice Nevi'im. And they're all prophesizing. And Shmuel is standing over them, which, by the way, the Chazal say is a tremendous comment on the Madrega of Shmuel because every you know um Bilam says no fail prophets prophesized in trances in sleep only Moshe Rabbeinu stood so we have Shmuel again being sort of compared to Moshe he's standing and when they came into the presence of Shmuel whose whole Greatness 
is expressed in his prophecy that spreads out to everyone, they're infected with the prophecy and they all start prophesizing. Can you imagine? They never come back to Shaul. People tell Shaul, they send back word. You know, your malachim are now busy being apprentice prophets. He sends another batch. And they also start prophesizing. is showing us the futility. Anyone he sends to Shmuel is infected with this kedusha, with this holiness, with this spirituality, and just turns into a prophet. It's unbelievable to think how great Shmuel is that such a thing is going on. People come to him and they just go on this tremendous spiritual aliyah. So Shmuel said, okay, I gotta go myself. Right, you know, if you want something done, you have to do it yourself. We don't know exactly where this is. This is a very poignant um, flashback to Shaul searching for the donkeys. And he comes again, he says, where is Shmuel and David? Now he's going, you know, intentionally for, to Nayot in Ramah, right? And he's going looking for Shmuel. Before he didn't know what he was looking for. And the Spirit of God came upon him also when he came into the presence of Shmuel. And he walks along prophesizing as he goes. And it's just an unbelievable thing that's happening to him. And um, let's just go to the last pasuk, pasuk hafdalad. By yipshat gam hu begadav, by yitnabei gam hu lefnei Shmuel, by yipol arom kol ayoma hu v'chol alayla al ken yomru hagam shaul banavim. Meantime, I'll just run ahead to the next parak. By yivrachta bin minayot barama. Okay. Shmuel, in his own spiritual way, saves David also. He saves him by taking everyone who comes to his orbit and raising them up spiritually so that they're experiencing this rapture and this connection to Kadesh And they're not like anymore, like David is like secondary. Shoal can't, can't be chasing David when he's busy having this prophecy. So there's a few things we have to examine here. And then, first of all, what does it mean by Yifshat Gam Hubigadav? What does it mean he also took off his clothes? And he, uh, oh, and he prophesied also before Shmuel, and he fell by Yipol Arom Kalayom Ahuvachalalayla. He could, could he be, we're not really talking about, um, taking off all his clothes. And what's the gamhu? So there's an interesting thing here. Um, the Radak says that when someone experiences the prophecy, they disassociate with the physicality so that 
their clothes, they, they just, they need to be very, very uh, connected to the spirituality and their outer trappings, uh, they take off. But Rashi says more simply, big day malchut. He couldn't wear his royal robes anymore. He had to be in more appropriate um, prophesizing clothes, so to speak. But another thought that's very interesting, right? Um, and here. Um, okay. It's a thought actually i think this was actually something that my husband said to me if you recall at the beginning of chapter 18 who takes off his clothes and gives them to david yonatan so by if shotgun who he's also taking off the royal robes it's also an indication that he is in a higher spiritual state able to see that he's really no longer the king but it's a strange, it's a strange manifestation. The simplest explanation is he took off his royal robe. But to finish up, we're out of time. And that's why people say, also among the prophets. If you recall, back in chapter 10, when Shaul comes back from his meeting with Shmuel, and he has prophesied, he's on his way back. And when he meets the prophets as the third step in his journey, he meets this band of prophets, the, the, you know, the singing seers, and he becomes a prophet. And people at that point say, and someone says, well, well who was their father? I know. If you think of it, like, and over there we said that when a person becomes unexpectedly great, we say, because he was the son of Kish. He was an ordinary person, now he became a prophet. In the case of this story, Hagam it doesn't seem to be the same kind of thing. It's not um, it's not the same kind of prophecy that he had there, which was an indication of his greatness. Here it's an indication of his, you know, um, he's really going down. He's really um, unable to accept his fate, and he's you know, the, the nevuah that he's getting is against himself, that David is supposed to be the king. So that's a very strange kind of counterpoint. Another thing that <clears throat> I wanted to mention in this context <coughs> is that there's a great um, comparison made by some of the commentaries with Eliyahu. So in the story, the first parak of Malach Bet, Right, um, Ahazia gets sick. Right, the son of Ahab. Uh, he asks the idol Balzavub, which means literally Lord of the Flies, and um, he he goes to find out from the idol if he's going to live, and. Um, those messengers meet Eliyahu who says, because he asked for an idol, instead of coming to a prophet, he's going to die. And Ahasad keeps sending, also three times he sends messengers to Eliyahu to capture him because of saying such a thing. And each time the messengers die, Eliyahu sets them on fire. And the third time, 
the the head of the messenger says, please have mercy. I, 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 you know, I, I give up, like whatever you want. And so he doesn't die. So Hashem tells him, you can go with him to Hazia. And there he tells Hazia his fate. So if we compare what happens there, it's, it's an instructive comparison. By Eliyahu uses fire and he uses, he, he, he destroys these people who are coming against him. But Shmuel, Shmuel is in such a, a madrega that everyone who comes after David, which is a, it's a very negative thing, he takes them and he elevates them and he makes them better spiritually and he brings them to a place where chasing David is just not on the agenda. So I think in a certain sense, you see here, and this is sort of Shmuel's swan song. We don't really meet Shmuel again until he's dead, and that's a whole different situation, right? But this is the way we see Shmuel exiting our, our story, exiting the stage, is that anyone who comes within his orbit is brought to prophecy, is brought to higher and higher levels. And that's, I guess, our last lesson to think about, how we in, can take people into our orbit and help them to elevate themselves and to make ourselves into the kind of people that elevate other people. And that would be a really worthy goal. And more in the adventures of uh, David and Scholes chasing him next week. Next week is this, the, um, the parrot contains the famous Haftarah Machar Chodesh that we did this past week, Shabbos Gracious. And um, it's definitely, uh, it's kind of fun to hit that just when we've had it in shul and to discuss it as Hashem next week. So I'm going to stop the screen share. We could say hi. You can unmute yourselves if anyone has questions. Hello. Yes, and Sharon, I have a question. Okay. Yeah. Um, how can it be that we we name people after Shaul if all of this Happened like it's a good question because we have a lot of personalities in the Tanakh whose um, life stories are not entirely smooth. But Shoal, Shoal himself is basically a great tzaddik. He's a great person. It's unfortunate that at, towards the end of his life, he becomes obsessed and afraid of David. But we see... You know, later on, when um, when he does actually meet Shmuel, Shmuel after Shmuel has died, Shmuel says to him, "Tomorrow you'll be with me," and the Chazal say, "You will be, you know, in Gan Eden with me." In other words, his sins are forgiven because of the heroic way that he dies, and oh. um, because of the, you know, the suffering that he went through. So, although we see him in a in a you know a personality trajectory that's very very difficult and hard and hard like you know it's very sad very tragic he's basically a very good person he's put in an extraordinarily difficult circumstances so we get kind of you know he gets a uh, th there's a number there's a lot of people in Tanakh who you know they did, made all kinds of mistakes David also made lots of mistakes why do we call people David right and even even the times that Shaul Amalek didn't listen to Hashem? 
that like that was also forgiven. What was his heroic death? Oh, maybe we're going to see well, it. He's he's in this terrible place. It's a chapter twenty-eight when he feels that he has no nowhere to go. He's he's hounded by the Plishtim. They're coming to get him, and he because he has um, done very very difficult things, which we'll get to in the next couple of chapters. So Hashem is refusing to answer him on any level. And the only thing he could think of to do is to <coughs> call up the ghost of Shmuel. And Shmuel tells him, tomorrow you and your sons are with me. In other words, tomorrow when you go out to battle, you and your three sons will all be killed, which is a horrific prophecy. And Shaul, at that point, you know, goes out to battle knowing full well the the end result so he's going to you know defend his people and do what he needs to do even though it's extremely difficult so that's a great thing so also um you know so many so many complicated things with Shaul. he's a very tough figure not a simple story but Shaul is a good name, a perfectly good name. No, nobody, you know, it says in uh, we don't have anybody, there's no tzaddik in the world who doesn't sin. Everybody sins. And um, Baruch Hashem, Hashem forgives. So that's the story here. But it's a good question. That's a question. Right, Debbie? We saw Trafim, um another point recently, right? When with the in Shiloh, Shiloh, the little Mishkan sort like where they were doing sacrifices close to uh, close to there before they took the Sefer Torah. And the lead, lead, the Ishalivi came. Weren't they using, didn't he have Trafim in his house then also? I think you're talking about Micha. Yeah, Micha. So Micha is not considered, um, you know, Micha has a whole situation <laughs> with idolatry. It's right. right. He makes right. a whole um, temple of Abodazara and he has, right. he has the whole gamut of Abodazara right. also. But the Trafim came up in that story. Almost every reference to Trophim is connected to Avodazara. Mm -hmm. And that's why when, when they sort of pop up like they were hanging out in David's house, it's kind of like, why does David have Trophim? Why would David have Trophim? So the, the best explanation I could, I mean, I went into it. I, I looked, I researched it. The best thing I could find was the Barbanel saying that this was, you know, a, a kind of household statue. It actually makes me laugh because... Um, <laughs> when we lived in the Bayako and many, many years ago, there was a uh, very lovely older woman that we were friendly with, and her house had lots of like statuettes in it, like different, you know, she had a lamp that was, do you remember Zahava? She had a lamp, and there was a neighbor, a Sparty neighbor, <laughs> and he came like, he, at one point, I was talking to him. He was he couldn't understand this woman. He said, "Her house is full of Odazara." I was, I was like, "Oh, actually, 
she's a little old Jewish lady that houses full of statuettes that she thinks are nice. It's not about his when, when, it could oof, been, I don't remember. What? I don't remember this. Come on, Florence. You remember Florence? She had things in her house that drove this smarty neighbor crazy. He said she's got a Mozart all over her house. You remember Florence? Yes, I remember Florence. I don't remember the rest. But I mean, yeah. <laughs> it was such a culture clash because, you know, you buy a little statuette and you put it in the house. So, like, I could picture, you know, that sort of truffin, you know, in the sort of, you know, artistic sense. You know, but he was. But like, I, I don't remember as a kid. He's yelling at me. You're not allowed to do that. How could you have it in the house? I didn't know, like, because I'm American. I didn't know how to answer him. Like, he was, like, so disturbed. The same people that were cutting the noses off the dolls in the house. Um, we had some neighbors like that that cut noses off dolls. So it shouldn't be a perfect image. There was a bunch of heads. They cut the noses off the Scheitel head. <laughs> But like the truffle is such a it's such a strange thing. Where did she get this truffle from? I, there's another explanation I saw somewhere, but I couldn't find it. I was looking now. I think it's from the Dath Mikla that probably the servants had it. I have to check in the Dath Mikla. I think that I, I did see that somewhere. The servants had these things, and that's where Michal got it from. It was in the house somewhere, but it wasn't hers. You know what I mean? I don't know. The very strangest part of this whole parak is why Why does Michal have dropped it? But I just see how like everybody, one after another, they go out of there, out on a limb to save David. It's very interesting. It's also, it's also interesting that you spoke about, like she tried to keep, Michal tried, to straddle both worlds, to be loyal to David and to be loyal to her father. And later on in in life, we see, you know, when David brings the Aaron up to Yerushalayim and he's dancing in a little bit of an undignified manner as she saw it, um, they have a little tiff there. And um, it's a very, it's a, the story of Michal is very sad. Very sad. He loves sad. David and we never get the sense that David loves her. She's, she risks her life for him, you know? And it seems like with Yonatan, at a certain point, like in the next parak, at the end of the parak, we see that that when David parts from Yonatan, he cries more than Yonatan. And it's, it's almost as if, like, he realizes, like, this is a person who sacrificed so much for me, and you, you never, I'm never going to have... A friend like that again like this is just and it's like it's it's so you know sad it's tragic so in the same sense like when when he's had his relationship with michal here it says michal ishto but in a later place it says michal bat shaul so it seems as if you know somewhere along the line that relationship deteriorates before the episode you know with the with the Aron that somehow she's kind of reverted to being Shaul's daughter and the outward dignity means more to her than Avodah Hashem. And, you know, and then her, when she looks at David, she's like angry with him 
for the way he's behaving, she's probably also, you know, it's probably very hard for her. Look what she gave up, you know? And then this whole story with Palti, like that's Wobaroor. Yeah, and then it says at the very end that she did not have a child till the day she died. Yeah, there is a uh, yeah. that says that she died in childbirth. She did have a child, but she died. Right. So she did have a right. child. I have to go. I just wanted to say thank you and bye, everyone. And I hope you're all okay. And I'm thinking about all of you there and everyone um, else. I had to talk to you. I tried to call you after I visited Ahuva. I wanted to give you like a little bit of a... Call me after. This is being recorded, I think. So <laughs> after. Okay. Yeah. Bye-bye. Good night. Yeah. So, the, the, you know, the, it's interesting, the Tanakh. You know, it has like these tremendous stories, but there's like undertones of tragedy with the whole shoal thing. It's so tragic. I just, you know. Yeah. As she sa it says, like, it seems, I think that the Gemara says that she, right? Michal would put on tefillin, nobody prevented her from doing that. I think like she returned into like a spiritual world. I don't, do you know, do you know that? I have to look into that. Yeah. Yeah. Like she, she got comfort from some high spiritual, I don't know. Very interesting. She's, she's a, yeah, it's hard to make sense out of it. They they really turned against their father, those two. It's like, what did he go through? It tells, ah. you, it tells you a lot about David, that they're willing to, their loyalty to him takes precedence over their loyalty to their father. But they also seem to understand that Shaul is not himself. The truth of the matter is that Yonatan and Shaul are at odds from chapter 13 and on. Like, Yonatan does his own thing. He kills the Pishti commissioner. And then he goes in battle. And he says, He disagrees with Shaul all along that battle. He just doesn't agree with anything he does. He's an independent player. So it's not so surprising. We know a lot less about Michal and Meirab. We don't, they're not sketched out so much, but we see that Yonatan is a really independent guy. And like, you know, if he doesn't agree with his father, he'll say so, you know. And his father, you know, this is what happens next, the next parak. You know, he really has a care with his father. His father calls him an unforgivable name. And um, he just storms off. It's just sad. Like, you don't know where that goes. But um, yeah, they definitely had very different views on life. Shaul was corrupted by this evil spirit. So that's why it's hard to like know how much is it his fault that, you know, the, the evil spirit, it keeps saying the evil spirit from God. So again, that the Bible tries to say it's not really from God, it's because it took away the good Ruach, that's why. But it just keeps saying the evil spirit from God. It's as if, you know, how many times do kings do inexplicable things? Or kings or prime ministers? Like, they just, you know, 
And then they tell you nonsense like Mashalim Mikan, Misham, Laroi Mikan. You know, the, my husband said on the Zoom last week, he said, I guess before you become prime minister, you have to take stupid lessons. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, but we do have this concept of lay malachim biyat Hashem. That, that, you know, those are the people who are determining how things go, and those are the people that God manipulates. It's an interesting concept because we don't really, we don't really like to see any kind of relinquishing of free will. But oh God, sometimes people do such strange things. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's a big yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, <laughs> 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 Like if we didn't learn Torah, you know, that's uh, keeps us in the right. realm yeah yeah look wow. around and we see what's going on in the world we say Baruch Hashem Banu. my grandfather was such a tzaddik my grandfather used to argue with people you know he was in that era in the you know in the 20s and the 30s but nobody stayed firm and he used to argue with people he said that you know you're no different from the non-Jew. He eats not kosher. You eat not kosher. You don't keep Shabbos. He doesn't keep Shabbos. But I, this is his line. I'm a member of Atabichartanu. I'm a member of Atabichartanu. who picked us. You can do whatever you like, but I know who I am. I'm a member of Atabichartanu. Really? Yeah. So that's that's yeah. it. Like, you know, thank God. Thank God we're not like them. Thank God. Too awful to contemplate. But then you have the Hasidah Yomasa I just, you know, I, I think I sent this out. I don't know if you saw it on the chat. This That Arab? That Arab. That Arab. He saved over 100 people. How to explain it? There are, there are very great people. That's why we have this whole section of Yad Vashim for them. We're always astonished when we meet them, but they're out there. There's a lot of people that are really. Yeah. Will save us. But what? He gave us such a hard smack. What a patch. What a painful patch. Very terrible. <sighs> You know. On Shmini Atzeres of all days. You stay one more day with me. I'm sending all the others home. I want time with you, personal time, and then a whack. Mm -hmm. I could just cry all day. Oof. You know, I, I was telling my students yesterday in school that I remember this story from the, like, I don't even, just memories of things that different people tell you, 
Holocaust story. And he was this man who was like a survivor. And after the war, he said, doesn't want to be from anymore. <clears throat> after what happened, he's done with God. And the next day, his friend that he said that to sees him, you know, going to shul, putting on his towels and fillet. And he says, what, what, what changed your mind? He says, I felt really sorry for God. He lost so many people. Yeah, he has to have to, you know, make sure he doesn't, you know, lose everybody. So I felt sorry for God. We talked about Imo was also suffering. So um, they didn't want to do that. It's so interesting because at the end of Gracious, it says, like there, there are limits to anthropomorphism, you know? When you say that God was but it says describe ascribing to God sadness. It's like it's really intense. God doesn't, you know, have human emotions, but how do we we have to try to understand from the way we can understand it? And the way we can understand it is God is sad. So I really believe God is sad. We want to do that. He wants us to step up and raise ourselves and raise us all. And, and you know, then he'll, you know, I'm waiting for that. Right? You just stay quiet and God will take care of it. Those, that's what I'm waiting for. I think the Jewish people are incredible people. I think that, you know, the, the incredible turnabout you know, I, I don't want to make any identifying comments, but someone whose very near relatives are serious leftists and uh, and she was sitting with them and they're so, they're so like stunned. Like they are just sort of rethinking their whole philosophy and they're like, you know, because they called this person, the relative all the time, you're extremist, you're this and you're that and you're police and blah, 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 blah. I think they might even have gone out to demonstrate. And now they're like stunned. They're just stunned because, you know, those right wingers are not actually crazy. They're not actually crazy. And the ability to put it all aside, all the politics, all the. Yeah, did you hear Herzog's wife today? She said, two weeks ago, you were squabbling with each other and. It's time to end all that. Okay, look at what everyone's doing today. You feel it on the street. Someone actually let me merge into her lane. <laughs> you know, whereas before, you know, they would just cut right by me. Kinder, <laughs> gentler Israeli, coming soon. Yeah, but there's something about the spirit, you know, like oh, it's unbelievable. Coming from the did, soldiers. Did you see that those what the soldiers wrote to the girls and what they said the voicemail? It's so cute. So sweet, so sweet, you know. Yeah, my grandson, you know, I, I'm I'm speaking to him a lot. They took him from the south now to uh, top north. He's now near near Tiberia somewhere. He he said when he was in the south, he said like 
Bubby, you know, there's so much food here. So we're all going to get fat. You know, stop bringing us food. There's always food. And he's got my husband's skinny jeans. So I'm not so worried about it. But he's like, they can't do enough for us. And up in the Kinneret, they're like, you know, buying them pizzas and stuff. Said like you know you just you feel it you feel the you know the oh hunger. definitely definitely we need that oh those shuim those shuim I can't so think of them I can't think about it because then you go crazy then I go crazy that's when I just meet a Bennett so I won't keep you we'll see each other tomorrow. Bezrat Hashem. I'm going to call my chayal. You do that. <laughs> you still, sometimes they said, uh, they say, I won't be able to speak to you for the next whatever. And then they go on some kind of a mission. He said, you know, like he hasn't been in the army for like three years. So they're doing a lot of imonim. So I said like, Bezrat Hashem, I keep davening that the, the war should be over before they want to do anything with them. Alavai. is right. Mm. Tov. All right. Tov. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. All Thank right. you so much. Thank Good you, Rabbi Good night. Okay. Bye bye.